This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. On today's episode, we're taking a step back from our normal format with a couple guests and conversations to look at, for better or for worse, how we did, Kurt, in our original series of episodes back in January of 2020, where we attempted to, to forecast out and discuss some of the major issues that would be coming this year. Yeah, it feels like a long time ago. And actually, it's been a long time since you and I sat down together, Chris. So it's going to be fun for an episode to uh, just just chat with you, old friend. But yeah, you know, we did take a few stabs at what we might expect in 2020, way back when we started the series in January. So it'll be interesting to talk about where we were right, uh, what things have happened since then, and take a quick peek at what's coming around the corner or what we think might be coming around the corner in the rest of 2020. Yeah, hopefully we're six or seven months uh, smarter than we were at the beginning of the year, but uh, but we'll we'll see how it goes. So for those of you uh, longtime listeners of the podcast, you'll remember on episode two, uh, we looked at what might be coming in the securities regulatory and enforcement space here in 2020. Uh, We focused on four or five major areas that that Kurt and I both believe would be uh, significant efforts uh, this year. Uh, the first of those being developing case law with a major focus on the Lou case, Lou versus SEC. We talked a bit about the pending and new SEC rulemaking efforts. A little bit of uh, discussion on the shifts in SEC enforcement trends or themes for this year. And then finally, as you all know, my personal favorite, accounting developments, uh, especially as it relates to the critical audit matters or CAMs and internal controls over financial reporting or ICFR. I mean, in some respects, 2020 has turned out to be uh, more eventful than we could have imagined, as I'm sure a lot of us are looking back. And and today we want to take stock of that, you know, where we are now that we've passed the midpoint of the year here in in late July, uh, as well as what to watch for for the rest of the year. Kurt, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about those major cases, and, and I know the Lou case had some significant developments early this year. Talk to us about what's happened. Absolutely, Chris. And this, this is actually a very recent development and undoubtedly the biggest case of the year for SEC enforcement wonks. So in June, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Lou versus SEC, and essentially the court confirmed that the SEC has the authority to seek disgorgement in federal district court. So that's the top line. But let me back up for a second because I think some context is important here. In 2017, in a now famous case known as Kokesh, and we've talked about Kokesh before, of course, the Supreme Court was asked to determine whether the SEC's disgorgement remedy is subject to a five-year statute of limitations. The court explained that the limitations period would apply if SEC disgorgement qualifies as either a fine, penalty, or forfeiture. And the court held that the SEC disgorgement requested in that case operated as a penalty subject to a five-year statute of limitations. In a footnote in Kokesh, however, the court expressly reserved judgment on, quote, whether courts possess authority to order disgorgement in SEC enforcement proceedings and on whether courts have properly applied disgorgement principles in this context, end quote. Leaning on that footnote, Lou asked the question directly, may the SEC seek disgorgement in federal district court? The Supreme Court took the case and found that, yes, the SEC may seek disgorgement, a traditional equitable remedy, but subject to certain limitations. Importantly, the court held that while the SEC may seek disgorgement, it may only seek to recover ill-gotten gains, which may prove difficult to identify as it carves out things like so-called legitimate business expenses. The court also held that the money the SEC recovers as disgorgement must be used to remediate harmed investors. There's a lot more nuance to the case. And in fact, I speculated in a recent Bloomberg Law article that the case actually creates two kinds of SEC disgorgement subject to different restrictions. But I'll leave the legal analysis there for now. Chris, while I've got you, 
I wonder what you make of Lou. Will will the need to trace assets or identify illicit profits or legitimate business expenses create more work for forensic accountants like yourself? That's a great interpretation, Kurt, of where this this kind of landmark decision on the disgorgement discussion has come come down. Uh, as an accountant, you know we love to to stay inside the bounds of of rules. You know we color inside the lines. Uh, uh, those less famous accountants, I guess, than, than those who color outside the lines. So anytime that we're given a more direct discussion of things like legitimate business expenses, we're, we're able to lean into that a little bit stronger. But I think that that's really going to push the analysis level down, right, from the the legal uh, discussions that have happened in, in cases prior to this down to the actual kind of dollars and cents that are coming in and out of all this. So for me, I mean, I, I see this, you know, maybe not in the next couple months, but but in years to come there being a much higher level of scrutiny on the damages calculation or the ill-gotten gains calculation than was there uh, uh, prior to the Lou case. So I know that a lot of uh, folks that work in my space in the forensic accounting world and in the uh, uh, the but-for and, and damages uh, calculation world are, mm-hmm. are are really salivating at the idea that there's going to be a lot more cases out there to, uh, to sink our teeth into uh, regarding these kind of very nuanced and technical ways of evaluating the, the transactional behavior of the of the case and and of the defendants uh, that it's being brought against. So, I mean, I know, Kurt, lose a big deal, but that's not the only case that's come down uh, throughout this year. Um, I know we've talked about a couple other cases on other episodes. Can we summarize a couple of those uh, as well in regards to what's happened in 2020? Yeah, happy to. I mean, I think, look, we've had one big case come down from the Supreme Court this year. It's the Lou case. There's been a trend in recent years where there have been a number of blockbuster cases that the Supreme Court has been asked to decide. This year, we really just have have the one, right? So we've sort of hit our quota for the year. But there are some other interesting cases floating out there. And I think that the kick and telegram cases and perhaps the fallout from those cases continue to be really interesting. We talked about Kick and Telegram extensively with Teresa Goody Guillen, Usman Sheikh, and Jason Samansato on episode 13 of Insecurities. So I won't rehash the facts and legal arguments here. If you want to hit pause and go check it out, listeners, I would highly recommend it. It's a good conversation. But I'll summarize by saying that in both cases, the SEC brought an enforcement action against an issuer that was looking to complete an initial coin offering, or ICO. And in both cases, the SEC argued that the tokens or digital assets the issuers were offering qualified as securities under the famous Howey test, which made them subject to the SEC's regulatory oversight. The Telegram case is effectively over. A court found that the tokens were securities subject to the federal securities regulatory regime, and Telegram subsequently suspended its digital asset project. That said, Telegram continues to be a bone of contention in the securities industry, and SEC Commissioner Peirce gave a speech on July 21st in which she complained that enforcement actions like Telegram squash innovation, and that it is not the role of SEC enforcement to determine the bounds of the securities laws. She would advocate for a more permissive approach to cryptocurrency regulation. Meanwhile, the kick case is ongoing, and one of the main issues seems to be whether the court in that case should follow the court's analysis in Telegram and find that the token's kick issues or wants to issue are securities that should be subject to federal securities regulation. It's going to be really interesting to see how the kick matter takes shape this year. There have already been some indications from the court that they don't believe Telegram is persuasive authority that they are compelled to follow. I'm not sure if that signals that the court is going to say the tokens aren't securities or or if they just are going to apply their own analysis. But I do think this is something that we need to watch uh, along with the cryptocurrency regulatory space more broadly. It sounds like uh, Commissioner Peirce is continually earning her nickname as the, quote, crypto mom, uh, as she's described both in recent discussions as well as earlier. And and I know, Kurt, we've talked a lot about kind of the dual approaches to, to securities regulation, you know, regulation by legislation or regulation by enforcement, right? And mm-hmm. and I think in this case, especially related to, to Telegram, maybe the, the enforcement action is a little bit too heavy handed, at least in the crypto mom's mind. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And I'm sure she's not alone in that. Suffice it to say, she speaks for many in the industry when she says maybe the SEC is stretching a bit when they start to think about all these tokens or digital assets as securities. 
I know one of the, we talked up top about some of the other things we focused on outside of the case law that was coming down. Um, SEC rulemaking uh, we discussed at length. Kurt, what's the name of that? I'm trying to think, it's a reg some reg something that we we were going to talk about <laughs> reg coming BI. into play. Said, summer. Oh, yeah, that was it. Reg BI. I said it. I said it. <laughs> I, I forget about that. Tell it. Tell us about where we are with Reg BI. Right, came into effect. You know, at the halfway point here uh, in the year. But uh, what else has been going on with Reg BI since January? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take on Reg BI, and and I've actually got a few a few rules updates. Um, so Chris, feel free to to stop me or jump in along the way. You know, I noted back in January that it's been a really busy eighteen months or so for SEC rulemaking. There's actually quite a lot to cover. So a, a few things I want to get through today, um, and let's start with Reg BI. Of course, where else would we start? Despite an unusual amount of pushback and a legal challenge that ultimately fell flat. The SEC's regulation best interest, Reg BI, and its companion form CRS went into effect on June 30th. The rule requires brokers to adhere to a different, arguably more stringent duty of care in recommending securities. It requires firms to eliminate or mitigate and disclose certain conflicts. It requires certain disclosures about the nature of the advisory or brokerage relationship on form CRS. And the rule generally creates new compliance burdens for firms. There's been a lot of saber rattling by states that have indicated a willingness to impose their own more stringent duties of care on brokers. But it remains to be seen whether that will come to pass and how exactly it will shake out. We should definitely keep our eyes peeled for cases that ask whether any such state rules or regulations are preempted by the SEC's Reg BI. So I I think that's a long way of saying Reg BI is now in effect, Chris, but if you think you've heard the last from me about Reg BI, I wouldn't be so sure. I was so hopeful, Kurt, but I know <laughs> I know it'll be a, a constant touch point for us in the episodes to come. Yeah. A couple other rules updates. So uh, remember that last fall, the SEC proposed to modernize its advertising rule by imposing a principles-based rule that is designed to consider new or different forms of advertising, things like social media. The comment period for the rule closed in February, but we are still waiting for a final rule from the SEC. So in some respects, we should put this really in the what to watch for bucket um, because we haven't seen the final rule yet. Uh, We also talked in the past about the SEC's proposal to amend the definition of accredited investor to broaden access to private investments, essentially making it easier for an individual to qualify as an accredited investor and thereafter participate in private placements or other securities offerings or investments that aren't available to the general public. Like the advertising rule, we still don't have a final rule or definition from the SEC. So this too, I'm going to put in the the something to watch for bucket. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm sort of stealing our thunder for later in the episode, but we need to keep following the accredited investor definition. All right, two more rules, Chris, and then and then I'm going to stop. Um, first, and these are things that have happened since our since our January episode. Right. Uh, so these are going to be both sort of new things and things to keep an eye on. Uh, first, the SEC recently proposed to increase the size threshold at which institutional investment fund managers are required to file quarterly Form 13F disclosures, which detail a firm's securities investments. The SEC wants to raise the reporting threshold from $100 million to $3.5 billion. This updates a rule or threshold that has been in place for more than 40 years, which makes sense and broadly fits within Chairman Clayton's and the SEC's uh, rulemaking agenda, which really wants to modernize a lot of, of older outmoded rules. But this particular rule has received mixed reviews because the new threshold would eliminate the reporting requirement for nearly 90% of the industry. So definitely one to watch. I think the comment period is going to be very interesting. I think it's going to be very interesting to see if any sparks fly among the commissioners. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Commissioner Lee had a particularly negative uh, reaction (laughs) to this proposal. So it's going to be interesting, something to watch uh, in 2020. And then the, the last rule I want to talk about today, Chris, earlier this year, the SEC proposed a new rule to modernize the framework within which fund boards can satisfy their valuation obligations. Broadly, the new rule would establish requirements for determining the fair value in good faith of a fund's investments and would permit boards to assign the determination of the fund's investment advisor 
subject to board oversight and certain other conditions. I wrote about the rule for Bloomberg Insights a few weeks ago because fund valuation is a perennial subject of SEC enforcement actions, and I think firms should be paying close attention to this rule because it has the potential to fundamentally change the way that they go about valuation. That could be interpreted as as good or bad, I suppose, but nevertheless, I do think it's going to be a change uh, to the workflow, to compliance considerations, uh, supervisory policies and procedures. So, something to watch in the coming months as as we move toward a final rule. Chris, I'm guessing again, just you know, based on what you do every day, that you might have been paying some attention to the fund valuation rule. Is this something that you think you're going to have to contend with? Yeah, Kurt. I mean, again, from the accountant's perspective, it's always as we see shifting responsibilities and, and, and timeframes here on terms of who's responsible and managing the day-to-day valuation uh, review of the fund, uh, you know, the accountants and, and especially auditors are going to be much more focused on who they're speaking with. So a couple of other things that came out with the, uh, the same proposal are rescinding a couple of um, auditing rules uh, related to uh, related to fund valuation. So, you know, most people in industry feel that this moves the auditor and the fund towards the same, uh, you know, aligns their perspective in terms of the valuation. And, and secondarily, auditors will now be able to employ sampling methodology to to the valuation techniques uh, instead of having to test 100% of the the fund's portfolio. So a little bit wonky in terms of audit uh, audit perspective, but you know the classic case of auditing any material balance uh, or focus is to pull a sample of those you know the underlying transactions or the underlying decisions about that and understanding how valid those that sample is and applying that that understanding to a broader population to understand what the risk of material misstatement might be. Here uh, as part of the proposal. Uh, the SEC has put forth the idea that the requirement for auditors to test the valuation of 100% of the fund's portfolio would be eliminated. And then we could have a more streamlined discussion about fund valuation issues from a PCAOB and audit perspective, as well as from the operational and the advisor perspective uh, going forward. So definitely on the radar, Kurt. Yeah, it's really interesting. Again, it's a little bit of a wonky rule, um, but something that I think is going to impact the industry a lot. I mean, whether whether you're a firm or an advisor or an accountant or an attorney. So definitely something to watch for in, in 2020. You know, Chris, while we're talking about the role or the work of accountants, I, I, you kind of teased it at the top. I know there's a couple topics we want to circle back to from our January conversation. So tell me a little bit, so far in 2020, w- what's happened with CAMS and ICFR. Yeah, so again, perennial topics on our on our discussion list from the accounting perspective. Um, you know, CAMS has has continued to be on the hearts and minds of accountants and auditors throughout 2020. Uh, as we talked about in episode two, the 10K season this year is the first full developed busy season in which all registrants will be subject to the new auditor's report, mm-hmm. uh, which involves the inclusion of a critical audit matter or a CAM. Uh, the initial data from those reports is still being analyzed, and obviously we've had a little bit of a delay in SEC reporting based on on current events. Uh, but we can glean a lot from what those in practice uh, are saying about the busy season as it's come to a close. Uh, recently, a New York State Society of CPAs panel uh, discussion hosted prior to the pandemic uh, by Baruch College, uh, CAMs were a focus uh, discussed from the early expectations of auditors. Uh, most audit teams went out and did what they called a dry run uh, related to the CAMs discussion. So walking through all of the steps to determine what CAM would be reported, uh, as well as how they would interact with management and those charged with governance to discuss those critical audit matters. In short, the PCAOB is seeing between one and four CAMs reported by each auditor on an audit report, which is on par from the dry run expectations that, that practitioners at some of the major audit firms have seen. Um, actually, it's a little bit less, though, than what's happening across the pond in Europe, where, not to confuse you, Kurt, and some of our listeners, they have their own CAMs, which are key audit matters, K-A-M, uh, CAM. Tricky. So. There, there's a there's a few more cams being reported on the audit reports occurring in Europe right now, but uh, you know they're not really seeing that as a huge indicator or difference in, in methodology, more so than just a, a fact to acknowledge. Uh, at the panel, uh, Lisa Smith, who's the managing director of quality and professional practice at Deloitte, uh, when discussing cams uh, reporting on specific audits in between uh, different audits of similar types, she notes that quote We've tried to get people to think about what's unique to their audit. Why would you call something a cam? I don't think you can legislate auditor judgment, so no one is going to have a bright line. 
not all cams are created equal, which is now one of my new favorite phrases. Uh, in terms of our prognostication about cams becoming a roadmap potentially for investor litigation against audit firms, the panelists at, at this specific event didn't bring that up as, as a key consideration at this point. I, you know, I'd agree it's a bit early uh, to be seeing audit malpractice litigation brought for, for 10Ks that came out only a few months ago. The key that auditors are seeing, however, is that cams relate solely to auditor judgment and not to management judgment, which is usually, obviously, a focus for audit teams. They want to be checking in on the judgment and, and kind of those squishy numbers that management might be uh, accruing for or reserving for, uh, you know, based on, on less than uh, complete data. Lisa Smith went on to say, quote, there's a lot of judgment involved. I think auditors get confused. When they hear auditor judgment, they think there has to be some form of management judgment for something to be a CAM. We've tried to debunk that. Auditor judgment is just everything the auditor does to perform the audit, end quote. And I think I agree with that. You know, in that sense, we're not seeing that roadmap to litigation or even kind of a tipping of the cap of what major audit issues were, but it's more a methodical, focused approach to the unique elements of, of the audit that the auditor either struggled with or needed to bring to light in order to, to better fill out their, their requirement on the short form audit report. Yeah, that's interesting. I like this concept that not all CAMs are created equally. Um, I, you know, I guess that kind of runs against the concept you mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, accountants tend to like bright lines or clear rules. And and maybe we're not quite there, <laughs> at least as far as it comes to to CAMs or K-A-M-S. Um, <laughs> I'd say, Kurt, maybe on episode 118, we'll be able to go through and, and evaluate how CAMs have, have impacted the industry. After a few restatements, you know, that's always going to be an issue. Uh, if you've got a, a company that needs to go back and restate its financials, God forbid one of the areas of restatement fell under that, that CAM description. Yeah, it's an interesting development to keep watching. All right. While we're in accounting mode, let's go ahead and, and hear what's up with the ICFR. So developments on the ICFR side have continued uh, as we discussed, and, and there hasn't been any leading uh, factors or indicators that develop in, in the past six months, but uh, it's continually a focus and a question that, that we get as accountants and consultants regarding how a company should approach their ICFR and specifically from an IT or a cybersecurity perspective. Speaking personally, I've dealt with half a dozen clients already this year that are working to respond and implement the cybersecurity piece of ICFR that was a discussion uh, by the SEC in their October 2018 guidance. So we're getting into that kind of 18-month period where um, people are able to digest and start to implement a lot of these issues. On a case story note, uh, most recently, I had a client that performed a detail review, which might have been overkill, uh, regarding making two invoice payments to a vendor that ended up going to a fraudulent bank account. It uh, turns out that the vendor, not our client, actually had a cybersecurity breach and a fraudulent actor or group of actors got access to their customer information list and then reached out to each customer of that vendor asking them to change the ACH uh, transfer information for the vendor. Uh, unfortunately, the client that I was working with uh, fell prey to that business email compromise uh, and sent some uh, a couple of invoice payments for for two consecutive months uh, directly to to the fraudulent entity. So they've turned around and not only said, you know, mea culpa, we've made a mistake here, we need to fix it, but also really brought the full force of how close are we to meeting the standards that are being put out in the industry related to internal controls of over financial reporting. You know, all of these discussions have been happening for the past eighteen months. We're nervous. You know, Chris and team, can can you help walk us through some of the issues we might be seeing? So, thankfully, like I said, I believe that they they reacted very strongly and maybe maybe a little bit more strongly than they might have, knowing uh, knowing the issues that came into play there. But for them, it wasn't specifically a, a cybersecurity or an ICFR issue. But I wanted to bring up that example to highlight just where we are from an attitude perspective regarding uh, how ICFR, again, specific to cybersecurity in this case, uh, is being treated from from the firm and the registrant perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and, and it's helpful to have a specific case example like that. I mean, I wonder if that is indicative of a shift that we're seeing among other companies or in the industry more broadly. Uh, do you have a sense of that, Chris? Yeah. I, again, I think that's unfortunately, and, and this is you know just more anecdotal than it is uh, systemic, is we're seeing a lot of uh, reactive focus on, on ICFR, right? Everyone thinks they've got a great internal control environment until something goes wrong. Uh, there are clients out there that have been in this game for a long time. I mean, ICFR is an outcropping of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. Uh, so those who have kind of righted the ship in, in the, the late aughts and the early teens uh, are continuing on that path. 
Um, again, every time the SEC brings an action related to accounting or auditing issues, uh, usually they'll throw in kind of the the special sauce of of the ICFR violations as well. Because if you've got a problem where you you've inappropriately accounted for something that hits the the financial statements, you know, de facto the internal control environment that that is attempting to mitigate risk around that issue uh, has probably been violated as well. So, you know, we kind of uh, stacked the deck, Kurt, in January when we talked about ICFR being a, a major focus because it has been for a while and it will continue to be uh, for much longer going forward. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, one of the other things that we talked about in January was comment letters and, you know, the topics that they often cover and how they can shape practices, um, you know, particularly for accountants, you know, among the things that we talked about are some of the perennial favorites perhaps of comment letters are revenue recognition, accounting for leases and CECL. So first, Chris, remind us what CECL is. And second, have we seen anything interesting in the comment letters so far in 2020? Yeah. And Kurt, I'll remind you that CECL is not the the first name of one of the SEC commissioners. It's actually a, a standard coming coming forward to be to be implemented actually this year. Uh, the current expected credit losses uh, accounting standard, CECL or CECL, relates to the way that financial institutions reserve or acknowledge the potential for losses on on their credit engagement. So the the old way of of accounting for uh, or reserving for potential credit losses is to look at past performance. If you're issuing a, a tranche of loans or, or a type of debt agreements of a certain style, you look at how those have performed in the past, and maybe they have a five percent uh, loss rate or a ten percent loss rate. You just apply that going forward. Now Cecil is asking those financial institutions to report what their current expectations of credit losses are as they issue new. New credit instruments. So on on you know July thirty first of twenty twenty, if you know or you have some feeling about the way the market's going to go and that ten percent history of loss is is either too small or too large, the accounting guidance is now enforcing or requiring uh, companies to to consider that forward looking forecast uh, for the first time, which can be a bit wonky and, and a bit tough to follow, but is really more of an informed decision uh, about where those credit losses might be going forward instead of uh, the past performance. So. I mean, Kurt, not to not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but really the the Cecil um, standard, which was supposed to go into effect for all fiscal and, and calendar years ending after December of last year, has actually been put on hold. Uh, that was written in as part of the the legislation coming from the CARES Act that the Cecil standard will not be required uh, to be followed by institutions, uh, you know, until a later date. So, you know, we we haven't talked a, a lot about the the pandemic and some of its impacts on on the securities regulatory and accounting world to date. But that's a very concrete example of, yeah. you know, as as banks and other financial institutions are looking to, to shore up their response to this issue, they're kind of pressing the pause button now to push CECL out. So uh, I know, Kurt, you probably got some deep discussions about CECL we want to talk about. But regarding the, the comment letter <laughs> process, I think things have really kind of moved along as what we thought, right? The comment letters that are coming in so far this year are related to kind of those big two developments that have happened in the past few years. ASC 606 related to revenue recognition and ASC 842 related to lease accounting. So uh, we could dive into a lot of them in detail here. Uh, they've, they've been adjudicated and been put out into the world uh, through the first six months. But I think this is one of those uh, prognostications that we we kind of came in spot on, you know, barring the the Cecil delay. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of things are, are going the way we thought they would related to comment letters. So. <laughs> Perfect. Kurt, let's get down to the bread and butter of what we love to talk about, SEC enforcement. You know, back in January on episode two, you expected the SEC to continue focusing on retail investors, but you predicted at the time that the pace of enforcement might slow down a bit. We talked a lot about last year's, uh, you know, crazy performance numbers, both with sweeps and with the general enforcement actions of the SEC. So you would also guess that the SEC would be focusing on digital assets, hint, hint, listen to episode 13, as well as on particular products like complex exchange traded funds or ETFs. Kurt, where are we with SEC enforcement this year? Chris, it's been an interesting half year in the SEC enforcement space, to say the least. And I mean, I really can't, I can't talk about the first half of 2020 without talking about the impact of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and how that has affected the SEC enforcement program. I mean, just as, you know, at a very basic level, 
COVID-19 forced the SEC, all of the SEC, including enforcement, to switch to a remote work environment, which means all of a sudden they are trying to conduct investigations from their kitchens and their living rooms. They're trying to do witness interviews and on-the-record testimony, collect and review documents all from home or in a remote environment, which has fundamentally changed the way that the SEC enforcement staff does its job. You know, I think everybody experienced a little bit of a learning curve, but my sense is that they did a fantastic job of of ramping up and sort of getting back to something like their normal speed relatively quickly. But it has also changed the shape of of the enforcement division and the types of cases they're looking at are bringing a little bit too. I mean, one of the most tangible things that SEC enforcement did was developed its coronavirus task force, which has been tasked with proactively identifying and monitoring areas of potential misconduct, ensuring appropriate allocation of resources, avoiding duplication of efforts, coordinating responses as appropriate with other agencies, and ensuring consistency in the manner in which the Division of Enforcement addresses coronavirus-related matters. So just ramping all of that up, they have a strong cross-disciplinary team on the task force, but it's been something that has you know, diverted some attention, uh, particularly in the, in the beginning weeks of the shutdown. The coronavirus has led to some new types of cases. I mean, one of the things that we saw in you know late March, April, early May time period, and, and we continue to see this, are just a, a wave of trading suspensions. And that's not something that's unusual. You know, we often see 12J enforcement actions come through, particularly at the end of the SEC's calendar year, uh, when when you know maybe they're trying to boost their statistics. Uh, but what we found this time was that a, a lot of those trading suspensions that happened, you know, in, in the end of the first quarter and beginning of the second quarter of, of this uh, calendar year related to companies that had been engaging in some kind of fraudulent misconduct that relates to coronavirus. Some of them were companies that purported to have access to PPE. Some of them were companies that purported to be working on or, or have some kind of vaccine. Some of them were, were more basic things that, that related in other ways to the coronavirus. It could be distribution of goods or something else, right? But they, they found a meaningful number of companies that were engaging in fraud, trying to prey on potential investors who, who were looking to make money by investing in a company that was doing something pandemic-related. And I think the thing we don't know yet about how the coronavirus has impacted the SEC enforcement landscape is whether or not it will have had a meaningful impact on the trajectory or the pace of SEC enforcement. You know, obviously, every year when the SEC Enforcement Division puts out its its report, everybody dives in and they want to see, you know, how many cases, what were the penalties ordered. I don't know what that's going to look like this year. You know, maybe my guess in January that there were going to be fewer cases this year or some kind of slowdown is going to be right. I can't really tell yet if the number of new cases that relate specifically to the pandemic are going to balance out the number of cases that maybe aren't happening because of a disruption or slowdown in the nature and type of work that folks in the enforcement division are able to do. Kurt, you spoke a little bit about the SEC, uh, you know, maybe padding their stats or, or looking to get some cases in. I don't know if you saw the landmark development last week uh, related to a 102E2 action uh, against uh, an accountant uh, of some note. Uh, but it seems that the SEC has, has finally turned the page back to a previous time in their life and, and finally disbarred or disallowed the accountant and attorney who helped support the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. Uh, is no longer allowed to practice in front of the commission. So although his his guilty plea came down in June of 2014, uh, looks like the SEC just turned around and needed one more action uh, to, to make sure that Mr. Konigsberg is uh, not allowed to practice in front of the commission anymore. So Yeah, that, that's funny. I did, I did see the action. I'm not sure if... If one action is going to be enough to pad them to get them over some threshold. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, I do think in a sense it reflects the the second point I was going to make about SEC enforcement this year. And that's that, you know, despite all the disruption, there, there really has been, for the most part, a sense that they are operating business as usual. Right. So 
in non-COVID-19 related cases, unsurprisingly, actions that involve allegations of harm or fraud perpetrated against retail, sometimes called Main Street investors, continue to dominate the SEC enforcement press releases. These cases so far in 2020 have run the gamut from simple frauds uh, to more technical reporting and disclosure violations. Some, of course, include cases alleging that financial advisors lied to, stole from, or failed to satisfy the duty of care they owe to their their clients or to investors, right? So just real sort of bread and butter, protecting retail investors types of, of cases. You know, I, I did say earlier in the year that I expected a bunch of SEC enforcement cases uh, to, to crystallize perhaps around certain complex products. Um, you know, I don't know that that has uh, happened in the way that that I imagined, but it has happened in a sense. And, and we've seen that with respect to mutual fund share classes, actually. Uh, so there have been quite a few cases so far this year involving investment advisors uh, who allegedly placed their clients in mutual fund share classes that charge 12B1 fees, which are recurring fees, when lower cost share classes of the same fund were available, and that those advisors didn't adequately disclose that the higher cost share class would, would be selected. Um, this sounds a lot like one of the sweeps we've talked about in the past, um, which was in connection with a self-reporting initiative called the Share Class Selection Disclosure, or SCSD, initiative. What we've seen in 2020 really are uh, quite a few cases involving 12B1 fees where the firm did not participate in the SCSD initiative. And what that meant for the firms was they weren't able to take advantage of some of the favorable terms that were available under that initiative. And they all got fines and other penalties that were stiffer than what they would have gotten in the SCSD initiative. Um, You know, I think it's interesting because the volume has actually been large enough that industry groups are now complaining that SEC enforcement needs to stand down in this space. And that instead of so-called rulemaking by enforcement, which, you know, we've already talked about today, these groups would prefer that the SEC propose an actual rule that clarifies the level of disclosure that is required with respect to mutual fund share classes. So, that's sort of product related. I'm gonna I'm gonna take like a half a win on that one. Um, <laughs> Point 0.5 points. All right. Uh, you know, just a, a couple other things that that we've seen in 2020. You know, there there have been several cases actually that relate to firms' order routing practices or disclosures relating to their order routing practices. A, a little bit wonky, um, but a higher volume than I think we've seen in in recent months or, certain, or recent years. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see more cases like that coming down the pike. You know, we've seen three or four FCPA cases, which is pretty much on par for for a half year. And then we've seen some technical sort of, you know, like reporting or, or rules kind of cases. You know, I would note that the whistleblower program continues to be full steam ahead. Um, the whistleblower office is reportedly receiving more tips than ever. And, you know, undoubtedly a bunch of those relate to things COVID-19 or, or pandemic related. But we've also seen several awards in the millions of dollars range uh, in just since the SEC went into its lockdown. So whatever disruption there might have been in other parts of the SEC, the whistleblower office really seems to be charging ahead. Kurt and I, if I recall correctly, we talked about how they would receive over 5,000 tips a year uh, in some of the more uh, aggressive reporting years in the yeah. past few. So my guess is we're probably going to do our recap of 2020 will sound very similar from a whistleblower perspective in terms of the focus and, and amount of tips they're dealing with. Yeah. I mean, who knows? We may blow past 5,000. Uh, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see. But just wanted to to make sure that that was sort of, you know, in the back of everyone's mind because... You know, whistleblower tips tend to be a driver of enforcement, and I think particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, that, that may be even truer than ever. All right, let's switch gears a little bit, Chris. We've talked plenty about what were our best guesses in January and what are some things that have happened since then. I think it would be important to talk about some things we missed, if if any, you know, if you could believe it. What do you think, Chris? Did did we miss anything in 2020? You know, I thought we were pretty smart and put together some reasonable arguments for for our thinking back in December and January. But uh, 
this whole pandemic has really changed the game here. And, and unfortunately, like so many others, both in our country and across the globe, we did not uh, appropriately list as one of our risk factors a pandemic, disrupting our pronouncements right. uh, early in the year. And that often turns to me as, as a you know, funny discussion of securities fraud generally. Uh, I know a lot of companies, tongue in cheek, were talking about, well, are we now on the hook for investor litigation because we didn't appropriately disclose our exposure to a, a global pandemic? So <laughs> seeing the impact, I think we've talked a lot about today, uh, as well as on previous episodes, I know we went both in detail, not only on on our own personal experience changes, but also speaking with Fabio Leonardi and Leslie Bravner uh, regarding kind of the enforcement and and COVID fraud and and, and other state level activities going on. So that's one, Kurt, I think uh, we, neither of us get any points uh, regarding the pandemic. No, no, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And we certainly weren't alone in that as I think we all uh, were were maybe taken a little bit by surprise by uh, the sweeping effects that it has had and continues to have you know, both in our practices and our personal lives. All right. With the time we've got left, I think it would be helpful to talk a little bit about some things that we should keep an eye out for in the rest of 2020. We've mentioned a few, whether that is the kick case or a couple of rulemaking proposals that are pending at the SEC. But a few more things I think we should touch on include, you know, fallout from COVID-19, CARES and PPP related cases. You know, what do we think SEC enforcement is going to look like over the next six months? What about Reg BI, right? My favorite. And then, you know, it's an election year, Chris. So let's just kind of tick through those and talk about some of the things we should be keeping an eye on for the rest of the year. So I'll start with the potential for any further fallout from from the COVID-19 pandemic. I think what is going to be you know, most interesting from a securities regulatory and enforcement context is how uh, the SEC has to continue to sort of adapt and change as we seem to be still mired in, in this pandemic. And whether that is the SEC providing additional r- relief to uh, issuers or, or registrants, uh, whether that is SEC enforcement continuing to have to adjust the way it does its business, um, which could mean a whole lot of things. You know, it could mean the way that they litigate or litigating less and bringing more administrative proceedings. I, I do think that there's going to continue to be a lasting impact um, in terms of how they're doing their business. And then, you know, I alluded to it earlier. I think it's going to impact the kinds of cases that they're bringing. One thing that I'm watching for in particular is to see if we start to see cases against issuers that somehow relate to the way that they conducted their business during the pandemic, things that they disclosed or how they disclosed them, uh, and, and whether or not that ever sort of leaks into the financial services or financial advisory space. You know, I, I think on the one hand, it's easy to imagine a case where an issuer um, failed to adequately disclose a risk relating to the pandemic, particularly after it became known that there was a specific risk. I mean, I, you know, Chris, I think that you were right to raise the point earlier. What should people have anticipated, you know, three or six months ago? I think that's different than maybe what they're experiencing now. But will we see cases against a, you know, a, a broker dealer or an investment advisor because of something that they did? Uh, relating to the pandemic. So, you know, I think that we haven't yet seen uh, the full spectrum of how COVID-19 is going to impact the securities regulatory and enforcement space. So that's something that I'm going to be watching in the rest of 2020. And I think, you know, Kurt, without getting too far ahead of ourselves here, it really depends a lot upon what happens with with COVID-19 generally. I know I've spoken with some folks in the medical profession that believe that there's going to be a very large second wave in the fall. And as, as kids are being asked to learn remotely or return to school, and we're kind of opening ourselves up to a whole new normal related to the the virus, there could be a whole host of things that, that come out of that. So uh, unless, Kurt, you know exactly when the pandemic's going to end, uh, we probably don't have a good... Uh, a good tip for that. But, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about some of the enforcement or potential lawsuits coming down the road. Again, I think we're in the the very early days. You know, we're definitely in the, the crawl stage of the walking and running related to civil and, and criminal suits regarding anything related to the pandemic. You know, we spoke at length on a previous episode regarding potential COVID fraud issues. You know, we also talked a bit about what 
types of things, companies and and financial advisors and others who are tapping into some of these relief programs from the government should be should be worried about or should be thinking about. I know uh, accounting firms generally are helping a lot of clients put together a package of information related to compliance around the use and value of the triple P loans, the payroll protection program loans that they received. And not to get into the details on that, but there's very specific elements that companies have to show that they use the money for and, and how that computes as an overall uh, amount of expense for their their business. And I mean, just earlier last week, uh, we heard from the Treasury Department that they're considering not uh, reviewing or investigating loans of, of a certain amount. I believe the number they kicked around was less than $2 million. So we may see a lot of cases coming from that area between between civil litigants, but mm-hmm. it sounds like from a uh, from a criminal perspective, we might be drawing a, a bright line there between what's going to be uh, chased after from the government perspective or looked into versus uh, some of the smaller amounts. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and it's certainly an interesting space to watch. You know, I I know that uh, some some lenders or intermediary banks are doing lookbacks uh, because you know when these programs were first announced. Everything happened so quickly. You know, the loan applications were flowing in and had to be processed seemingly immediately. Mm-hmm. And everybody was just sort of trying to keep their heads above water. You know, I think now some number of of intermediary banks are looking back to say, you know, did we do this right? And if not, let's think about how how we should handle that. Um, so interesting to see if that's going to be something that that could be in the mix as we see what happens in terms of CARES Act or, or PPP related uh, criminal or civil um, enforcement actions. And again, we're here at the end of July, I believe, uh, you know, according to recent headlines that uh, folks on Capitol Hill are discussing a, a kind of third stage of relief. So we may even see another another fun acronym, Kurt, that we can talk about that impacts uh, the securities <laughs> industry going forward because you know we love those. I love it. All right. I'm going to tick off two more things to watch and I'm going to handle these relatively quickly. I mean, the first is, as always, going to continue to watch SEC enforcement trends and developments. You know, I'll have a, a particular eye on the SEC enforcement division's annual report, which I would expect to see sometime in mid to late November. Uh, but between now and then, just looking to spot trends. You know, again, they, they've had to fundamentally change the way that they do their work. I, I think now they're getting back to some level of normalcy, but that's going to impact the types of cases they bring, the timing of the cases they bring. And it's going to be interesting to see what those cases look like over the next five or six months. The other thing I'm going to be watching for the rest of this year is just to see what else happens around regulation best interest. And, you know, okay, I good. Know, so you'll cover Reg BI. I, for I'm going us. to cover Reg BI. I was for, nervous you were going to sign that to me, but I thought it'd the, be much better with you for the rest of the year. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there are a couple states that have, uh, that have issued rules or regulations that would seem to overlap with Reg BI and potentially impose a more stringent duty of care. You know, will we see litigation around that? Particularly, will we see cases in which the question is asked about whether the SEC's Reg BI preempts the state rules? Um, I'm also going to be watching to see what we learn from early exams conducted by the SEC's OC or the FINRA exam staff. You know, both have kind of said, or the exam staff from both agencies have said, this isn't a gotcha game. We're not looking for perfect compliance. In fact, you know, Chairman Clayton has made clear that what they really want is for firms to make a good faith effort to comply. But the SEC and FINRA plan to issue findings and potentially a joint report sometime later in the year saying, you know, in our initial rounds of examinations where we were looking at Reg BI compliance, here's what we found. That may look like best practices. It may look like common pitfalls, but I'm definitely going to be watching for that. Also, I'll be watching for what what appear to be enforcement referrals, right? Again, the exam staff, the enforcement staff have said, we are not looking to catch people for technical fouls or foot faults here relating to Reg BI. But you can imagine that there will be some enforcement around Reg BI. And that could run from a firm that just ignored it uh, to a firm that got it really wrong. Uh, But you can always learn from those types of actions. So that's the other thing I'll be watching for uh, with respect to Reg BI. Chris, that leaves one topic. You want to bring us home? The elephant or the donkey in the room uh, would be the 
2020 election, obviously, in very early November of this year, you know, there's a whole host of things and we're not going to attempt to to cover all of the implications and, and races and things. But, you know, obviously there's a presidential election and, and a whole host of of um, representatives and, and senator seats that, that are available, uh, not only in November, but also obviously in, in some of the um, appointments and, and retirements and things that have happened in the past few months as well. So, I mean, you know, we can talk a bit about what a continuing Republican administration with President Trump will look like. Uh, you know, obviously, if, if the presumptive Democratic nominee, Vice President Joe Biden, ends up getting elected, we might see a lot of difference, especially at the SEC, in terms of commissioners, uh, you know, chair people, as well as if the Democrats, you know, take over the other chamber of Congress with the Senate, you just start to spiderweb into all the different ideas that might come from that. And I know a lot of the focus of, of kind of the general media, as well as those in the securities regulatory and enforcement space are, are really kind of in a hurry up and wait mode related to what happens in November. Yeah, absolutely spot on, Chris. It's something that um, we're all going to be watching, whether it's because we're interested to in what happens to the securities world or or not. So here we are, everybody, uh, you know, seven months into to this year, almost eight months into the year. And I think that a lot of the things that Kurt and I thought were were potentially going to be interesting throughout the year uh, have held true. So I don't know if any of you have scorecards at home or keeping up with who scored more points on the uh, forecasted 2020 list, but I'm pretty sure I had more than Kurt. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think that there may be some creative scorekeeping there, Chris, but uh, would welcome comments from from the listeners at home who, who have been keeping track of these things. I mean, hey, there's no baseball, so maybe you're keeping score here. Opening day here in D.C. tomorrow, Nats versus Yanks. I'll definitely be tuning in. And, and hopefully we've got a, a curly W by the time this episode airs. So thanks, everybody, for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. Uh, as always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I am at Enforce underscore update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.